really. Yeah, is what it comes down to. I don't know why he didn't do that. Uh, that's weird. Amlo. Probably hashtag fail, buddy. Probably hashtag a function share. purely of political will is my yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's, as in not enough. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. No, no, no right. fucking question. No backbone. If look, if he only wanted it a little bit harder, you know, it's like yeah. that uh, halftime speech, you know, that the the little league coach gives about like you know where your heart is and how bad you want it. That's <laughs> that's that's the that's the theory of social and political change. That's right. You just gotta want it badly enough. That's or right. Clear that's eyes, right. full heart, expressive <laughs> the production. Can't lose. <laughs> According to any Trotskyist, that's one hundred percent accurate. That, that actually is pretty much the Trotskyist theory of history, <laughs> like more or less. Right? Why didn't you try harder? I should tell. I should tell you guys that I'm recording, and this is one hundred percent going to stay on the cold opening of the B side. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's up, everybody? Hey, patrons. Uh, this is uh, the B side of Dead Pundits. We're going cold. Uh, no intros, no plans, no nothing. Uh, I've got a coterie of uh, uh, of despicable leftists on the on the podcast today. Let's start with the the regular crew, uh, Mr. Ben Burgess, uh, joining us in the program. Uh, we've got Brianna Last joining us for her first B side this week, and uh, our guest is uh, well, the one and only uh, Dustin. Guastella from Philly DSA, that scourge uh, on the left, uh, that chapter from hell, that uh, hashtag fail army of uh, class reductionists. Dino, thanks for for joining us, my friend. I think I'm pretty well liked. Yeah. (laughs) Best mustache on the left. That's that's without saying. Really a shame that anybody who's listening to this as a podcast uh, has to just try to imagine the mustache as best they can. Just imagine we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, 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 we'll, we'll, yeah put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, so Dino's uh, selfie will be listed in the show notes. Ben, you just you just wrapped up a like a, an eight hour uh, Jacobin stay at home episode about Amlo. I, I, I trust you guys rightly denounced him as a, a reformist scumbag. Yeah. Yep. Uh, hot garbage sellout. Uh, it was it was just the, the entire hour and twenty minutes, whatever it ended up being was just consisted of us listing all the di- things that we would have done differently if we were the president of Mexico and uh, and we're doing the very easy thing that is trying to run a social democratic government right next door to Donald Trump's America. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure that the only possible reason that in that situation you wouldn't do everything that we would want is that you're a fucking sellout. Yeah, I think that's that's a sound analysis. Mm. Yeah. I didn't want it harder. Didn't want it badly enough. Brianna, how are you hanging in there? This is your first uh, first DPS B side. Are you are you nervous? You got nerves? Did you did you did you hurl uh, before uh, recording uh, started? What's your what's your ritual uh, up to now going to be? Your pre recording ritual? Mm. Well, some say I was born to podcast. Mm. So mm. I, I wasn't. <laughs> some some have said that. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So uh, happy to have Dino on the show. Um, we don't have any specific topics, but uh, you have written about every damn thing under the sun for the past several months. You've become like a prolific contributor, Jacobin. Uh, and honestly, I know we've been tongue in cheek, but I'm going to be uh, I'm going to do that like uh, cringy, like um, sincere thing for for 10 seconds and we'll get back to to. Uh, to irreverent jokes, but like you are seriously one of the most like important commentators on the socialist left today, uh, certainly of our generation. And if people aren't reading you, uh, what the fuck is wrong with you people? 
I mean, I think that's kind of like being the the tallest building in Kansas, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll take the compliment. No, your throw your 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 analysis is a bit of a throwback in in a lot of senses, right? Like, um, you know, which is also uh, you know uh, not uh, coincidentally uh, what what gets you guys in trouble so much over there in Philly, and uh, uh, in terms of your your, your the where you where you're headed. But uh, I've been wanting to get into the show for a long time before I added uh, Ben, and before I had to go ahead and add one of your uh, comrades from Philly to the podcast before I could bring your ass on here. So thanks. For you, the had, show. you had to get you had to get Jared on first. No, we tried we yeah. tried to work it out with me and Jared getting on at the same time, and I'm sad I missed it because he sounded so much smarter than me, and I would have liked to have. Uh, got a word in there, got an edge, you know, on him, but you know, he's, he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. So we had Jared on, uh, your, your co-author of, uh, your, uh, party of a new type style, uh, um, addendum, um, addition. How, how would you characterize that particular article with respect to, uh, Seth Ackerman's piece? I like to remind people, like, it's not for nothing that Seth and that particular essay about what it would mean to build a party of a new type, a socialist party, Given the kind of con- conjecture, conjuncture rather that we're in right now, politically, legally, socially, class-wise, and all the rest of it, your piece was an addendum, but also a challenge in a, in a really important way. Yeah, characterize that for us. Maybe. I, I wonder if I wonder if maybe even you know we could we could back up a little bit. Um, you know, so so one you know one way to 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 ease into it you know i mean i i mean i assume everybody's listening to the b side has done their fucking homework and and read and read that seth ackerman piece but uh you know but uh but just in it's case they have my job to <laughs> explain this shit to you guys yeah okay? yeah no absolutely that's the the purpose of this podcast has absolutely nothing to do with educating people which is uh which is definitely somebody else's job but uh, but you know one kind of basic normie way into the question would just be okay so just like we can all agree that um you know that that amlo if he weren't such a horrible sellout would have just uh, done all the things and uh expropriated all the things uh obviously if if like bernie sanders you know wasn't such a sellout he would have just broken from the democratic party and because the democratic party is terrible and uh and started a new party and then won Right. So, uh, is is there an alternative non sellout explanation of why not to do that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good alternative explanations, but chief among them is that the political system in the United States is really set up as what we call an internally mobilized political system, which means the parties start in Congress and then go out from there into the countryside. That's how our parties have started historically, even the radical parties like the Radical Republicans or the Free Soil Party. And so the question has always been, how do you have a constituency large enough to get a big enough block in Congress and then drive a wedge strong enough to break off to have a party that's competitive all over the country? And the answer to that has so far been basically, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to just start a third party from scratch, you know, and we're trying to start it out of nothing. And I think the failure on the part of the left intellectually to grapple with the real political realities of a first-past-the-post, winner-take-all system in every congressional uh, district in this country means that the way in which many leftists have interpreted both the party system and electoral politics is that independence on the question of the party line comes before all else, right? And my simple challenge to people who say this is what is to stop? And even if you succeeded, 
Because this is the, the real question here. Even if you succeeded and you got some congresspersons elected on a third party ballot line, what is to stop those congresspersons from either defecting into a party that can more adequately get them reelected or drifting to the right on policy? There's not much to stop them because the incentives are there to say they have to win a majority in their congressional seat. And when people use the word structural, I think that they often forget that structural implies an incentive structure, a carrot and stick approach, right? And the American party system is one of the most structured systems in world government. I mean, if you don't win, you get nothing. You don't get a proportional share of your vote. You don't get some seats in Congress. You get zero seats in Congress. So any party that wants to break into the system has to figure out a way to build a majoritarian bloc. That's your first problem. Your second problem is you have to do that with the existing constituencies that are out there. And those constituencies are very well trained to understand that minoritarian parties can't win. They can't win in a big way. So what Ackerman, I think, started and what I, I, I think you know, Adam's right that what we tried to do was put some meat on the bones is Ackerman said, look, at the end of the day, what we need is a constituency and we need to figure out how to how to get people through this maze-like system of government to access a constituency. And he said, the ballot line question is one we should throw out the window. And we should basically understand ourselves to be looking at the American parties for what they are, which is these giant conglomerates of interest groups and not centralized party structures, and use that for our own advantage. We should be an interest group among them, right? We should run candidates that are on the Democratic Party ballot line, but pushing a social democratic or democratic socialist agenda. So what Jared and I tried to do was flesh out the historical reasons for why that is the case, for why the American party system is so bizarre, and then a structural case for how you could avoid some of these pitfalls. And I'll just say, as a last point on this, one has to understand why the left populist moment happened inside the Democratic Party and inside the Labour Party in the United Kingdom and in America, whereas it happened outside those parties in places like France or places like Mexico. And if your explanation for that is just political will, you're going to miss the real understanding of why Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn were able to be more successful inside those parties than they would have been outside of them. And I think any serious leftist has to contend with a, you know, a global understanding of the differences of party systems and why some party systems are different from others. We can't just flatten it all out and say at the end of the day, it's all the same and we, we have the same strategy in every single country. That simply won't work. You you threw out a bomb there. Let's define it for people. This could this could be fun for all of us. Brianna wrote uh, a really great piece for the Bellows that I think tried to put some meat on the bones of this argument. Uh, ben, you've been doing the circuit. We talked about this on last week's show about the kind of uh, the 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 astroturfed uh, you know faux right wing populist movement that that really has nothing interesting to say that like wasn't said by like you know Reagan Republicans in the 1980s. They just sort of have a different pizzazz about them, you know, a different, uh, a different strut, a different aesthetic. Um, but you, 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 uh, you threw out that left populist term. What does that mean to you? Well, I think it's a, you know, I think that the preeminent expert on this is Anton Yeager and I would defer to him nine times out of 10. But for me, 
what we've experienced in the Bernie years in through Podemos and through Corbyn was an attempt at consolidating a constituency that's frustrated economically and frustrated with the prevailing status quo of neoliberalism, but is not self-identified or not self-consciously a workers' movement. So it's difficult to categorize these movements as workers' movements or parliamentary expressions of the workers' parties because they're not quite that. And I think some of them have a very socialist political platform, but at the end of the day, they attracted a much broader layer of society than what one could call self-identified socialists in every country that they were somewhat successful. So I think that to the extent we can define left populism, which I think is a really difficult thing to do, it's this kind of moment we're living through where a left-wing economic agenda is essentially capturing a broad enough constituency that's kind of disorganized and not quite self-conscious of itself as a particular block, but using it in an electoral fashion to, to move the ball forward. So that's kind of my, my half-assed definition. Brianna, you had a lot to say about this kind of, um, oh man, uh, the, the, the gaps, the, the, the spaces that need to be filled by that thing as, as our, as our pal mentor, comrade, Adolf Free Jr. would say that thing, which will at some point have become the left, uh, that placeholder, uh, like what, what is, what does that kind of left populist movement mean to you? And then I want to, I want to turn to Ben and give him a chance to, to wax poetical. Cause I know he's been thinking a lot about this in terms of like just the populist movement in general, Justin articulated well the the contrast of organizing people as the masses versus organizing people as workers. And I think that that distinction is really important because, you know, Rene Rojas has written extensively on the way that the Pink Tide movement was really successful at organizing the masses. And, you know, there were huge street protests that went on for weeks and months on end in Latin America, which showed the real power of populism in Latin America. But I think Bernie's campaign is was, oh, that was such a sad slip, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, different insofar as I think he really did organize people as workers. He constantly used the term working people. Uh, it wasn't a, a rhetoric of the, the 1% versus the 99%. Uh, it was a rhetoric of, you know, the working people against the millionaires and the billionaires. Uh, so I think, you know, Dustin points to a very longstanding argument about the pitfalls of populism and organizing people as uh, the masses because, you know, you don't actually build the constituency that you need. People need to identify as workers in the political terrain so that they can uh, engage in activity as such. And I think that that's, that's a really important distinction. Yeah, and I'll just say that we got very lucky that we had an old left socialist at the head of the left populist moment, because it's that was not a foregone conclusion, right? There are plenty of left populists the world over that do not have Bernie's kind of conviction and understanding of the the need to articulate that this is a movement of working people and that we're going to be pushing for working people. 
And I think we could easily imagine a charismatic younger version of Bernie that did very similar left populist appeals, but never articulated it in that particular way. And I think it's one reason why, you know, the tradition of socialism is important uh, rhetorically and ideologically, because Bernie was not a product of progressivism. Bernie was not a product of liberalism. He was a product of a very particular old left milieu that he, you know, took that rhetoric and applied it to a contemporary time and it had a lot of resonance. And I think we should be appreciative of the fact that we did get lucky with having a socialist be the head of a left populist moment rather than, you know, a straight left populist, whatever that might mean, or a progressive or a liberal who might focus on very different agenda issues, right? And they might not have had nearly the impact that Bernie had. It's very easy to imagine a Warren-type figure who focuses on primarily busting up big corporations or providing certain types of tax cuts or these sorts of things that kind of gets in the vein of left populism and, and captures some of that constituency, but never quite articulates the frustration and anger of working people at large as workers. And I think we did get we were we were blessed to have Bernie be able to be the one that articulated that. Yeah, and, and even just on a really mundane level, just just the fact that he constantly, uh, you know, every time he said this phrase "democratic socialism," a million people did Google searches, and uh, and that's like like really as much as anything, right? You know, that's why DSA is what it is right now. Um, that you know, certainly not you know, certainly at least in terms of the initial influxes. Um, of new members, but I mean, I guess you know, thinking about populism, but I, I do want to get you back to the stuff about the Democratic Party and some of what you've written about that for for Jacobin uh, in the last few months because I think it's important. But like, I think on the most basic level, populism is a rhetorical style, right? That you know that you're that you're appealing to the people, right? As as opposed to you know to some sort of elite group, and that's a rhetorical style that can be used you know, for uh, nefarious purposes, obviously, and with very little meat on the bones, uh, you know, as, as in, you know, the, the sort of economic rhetoric of a Tucker Carlson or somebody like that. Uh, and, and it can be used in a fairly positive way, you know, like the, some of these pink tie governments, you know, that, that you mentioned. Uh, and, and I think it, it, the best version of it, right, maybe could edge into socialism, you know, that, uh, that if you have that sort of uh, labor populism, you know, labor tinged populism, where you, uh, where you know, like 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 with Bernie, right? You know that uh, in a lot of ways, what his rhetoric is, it seems to be, it was, it was like a combination of the way we might talk and uh, and this what was maybe there was maybe more of an audience for in that kind of populist moment, right? That there were definitely classical progressive populist themes there. Uh, certainly like framing the enemy, you know, as the billionaires and the billionaires, you know, uh, is, is a fairly general kind of populist appeal, you know, uh, but then on the other hand, you know, he's talking a lot about working people in unions, you know, certainly he's, he's saying things like, uh, uh, you know, he's, 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 you know, there are sort of classic progressive populist demands about like breaking up the big banks, right? You know, but at the same time, uh, he is talking about, you know, putting, you know, putting, you know, putting certain key things under public ownership and, and even, you know, starting the, the, the germ of a, a nationalized banking system through postal banking. But I, I, I guess 
the way I'd see it, I'd be curious how you see it, is, is that this, even though there's a lot going on there and some of the elements might be in tension with each other in some ways, right? You know, it's so like there are certain lines, maybe they're blurred. It's blurred in a really positive, productive direction way that's that, you know, that, that could point in the right direction as opposed to in a sort of weak tea, Elizabeth Warrenish sort of way, you know, that, that could, you know, that could maybe point in the other direction. Yeah, well, the way I'll put this is I think that there was no other way to yeah. move forward. And I think that, you know, it's not a question of whether or not Bernie used the right words or phrases. It's a question of why was it that the political moment called for such a, you know, such a, a particular rhetoric? And why was it so, why was the constituency so responsive to it? And for me, the answer to that is pretty simple, which is we took a leap, right? And the leap was that we went way behind enemy lines electorally, but we didn't have the institutional backup in between that leap and what was behind it. So the very traditional you know, model of a workers' party or the very traditional model of a workers' movement sort of venturing into parliamentary politics is a very powerful labor movement deciding that it is going to decouple itself from the major parties and deciding that it's time for them because they're not getting anything out of the major parties to invest their resources into doing their own kind of political action. And when that happens, it's a very different dynamic than what Bernie did, right? When that happens, you have a self-identified, self-conscious constituency making a decision to do a certain type of electoral project, right? And that is the formation of a labor party. That looks very, very different. And its rhetoric is going to be very, very different because its constituency is real. And its constituency is organized and they know who they're talking to. They have to they have to constantly negotiate with their membership, with their institutional leaders, with the, you know, the entire contradictions of the labor movement to figure out how to move forward. What left populism does is it takes the leader and tries to push the rhetoric as far as it can go in the hopes of igniting a constituency back here. Mm-hmm. That the idea is the constituency will then you know, follow up and be the, be the, um, you know, the rear guard in, in the, in the long term. And so I think we have to understand that, you know, what Bernie did was not yeah, simply, he didn't choose to go left populist. There was, there was no other choice. I think that that was the, the moment that he was given and, and it worked in so far as it created a, you know, a live experiment that said, what happens what happens if you propose big, bold, left-wing economic demands and you stick to inequality and the issues of working people on a day-in, day-out basis? And what we find is that many people respond to it. You know, the, the big myth of the Democratic Party since, you know, after Johnson, really, is that people just aren't interested in that kind of big picture, New Deal, great society style liberalism. What they're interested in is kind of small is beautiful, local liberalism, cultural liberalism, these sorts of things. But they're not interested in the big welfare state. Everybody hates the big welfare state. And I think Bernie proved, well, that's just simply not true. Like we, there is a massive constituency in this country. You know, if you read Piketty's recent book, you could argue that there's about 25% of the country is hardcore for that stuff day in and day out. You know, and, and I think that we need to build on that. We got, you know, we had a, a, a hypothesis that was, that gave us a lot of interesting information and we can now move forward and figure out how to organize that constituency. So, so the reason 
Just to be clear, though, the reason that Bernie lost, um, I, I read a piece by Michael Tracy about this, is that he didn't wear an American flag pin. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I want to be clear. I think that the, the authors of that piece did get something right, but they got it right about the American left and not necessarily mm-hmm. about Bernie. And I think that was the, the big pitfall. Like, they were using Bernie as a cipher for what I think the activist left often does do, which is be quite alienating to ordinary people. Uh, but I don't think Bernie fits in that category. And I think the structural determinants, you know, I've said this before and I've written about it, the structural determinants against him were so massive that we can't claim that this was simply the failure of rhetoric. It wasn't the case that if he had said certain words or certain phrases, he would have easily leapt over the finish line. I think, you know, we saw the Democratic Party, which has never been a very organized party, organized faster and with more viciousness towards Super Tuesday than we've, than we've seen them ever organize against Republicans. I mean, it, it was a remarkable coalition of, of forces that came together to stop Bernie. And so we have to be real about what is and what is not possible politically. And again, look, Bernie could have done everything right. Bernie could have sounded exactly how, you know, we wanted him to sound. And he, would, he could have said everything right on the campaign trail, never made a gaffe, had done everything perfect. And you just realize your constituency isn't there and you lose anyway. That happens all the time in politics. It is the case that you can do everything just right and still lose. And we have to understand that that's the name of politics. It's not, we don't naturally have a majority. There's no just naturally existing majority that says we're always available and you just have to say the right words and push the right buttons and we're going to go vote for you. Yeah, no doubt. That kind of imputed class consciousness. Uh, sorry, Brianna, you had something? I was just going to ask Dustin for you to elaborate a little bit on what you think is necessary for the type of class formation that would facilitate a real Bernie victory. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Playing off the kind of imputed versus like empirical class consciousness distinction. I think Georg Lukacs made that in a way that was probably wrongheaded, but it's an interesting way of framing the question, right? So class, class sort of like as a structural phenomenon, if you read enough Marx, you sort of understand people being tied to their relations of production in certain ways, in theory, in an abstraction. But then like, yeah, that, that brilliant question, you know, that you just asked Brianna about like class formation. And that's a hotly contested thing on the left right now, particularly with respect respect to what's happening under the banner, under the sign, the very vague sign of Black Lives Matter, by the way. So it's like not not a not an abstract uh, uh, question right now. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think the short answer for me is we have to start actually running workers. I mean, I think that one of the biggest challenges of the left, and when I say the left, I really mean broadly, liberals, progressives, socialists, anybody on the left of the spectrum, is that we've lost non-college educated workers in massive, massive numbers. And one way to win them back, and I, I think that this could be empirically proven if we have the data, Jared and I have started to look into this, but one way to win them back is to start running those people. You know, there's no good reason why we can't be running, you know, warehouse workers for Congress and having them articulate the same kinds of politics that Bernie talked about, but igniting a constituency that they are organically much more connected to, right? A constituency in their union and in their neighborhoods that they have a much more organic connection to than, say, the kind of millennial left, the DSA left does by virtue of their position in in the class hierarchy, right? And I think that's a prerequisite. Right. Whenever I talk to my my family back home uh, about 
socialism. Like, and I, I try to explain to them what I think a parliamentary socialism or a democratic socialism looks like. The example I always give is, is a Congress that has 70% of its membership drawn from the working class. Because if we're actually going to have a democratic society and we're actually going to represent what the society looks like on the basis of class, then 50 what odd, uh, some odd percent of Congress should be non-college educated. A huge chunk of Congress needs to be blue collar workers. A huge chunk of Congress needs to be manual workers. And that's just not the case, right? And it's a crude way of getting at the question, but it's a way that immediately ignites people's self-understanding of class. My family is very class conscious. My family has always talked about themselves as working class. They've never talked about themselves as middle class. They understand. When I introduce myself at college, when they ask, they do those stupid icebreakers. They say like, what are three things that you would describe yourself as? One of them was working class. And it was just instinctual for me. So there's, there's a group of working people out there that recognize that they are working class and that they are, you know, a group that exists. But politically speaking, they're not represented anywhere, right? And I think that we do need to think of how we build an electoral apparatus, not just an electoral apparatus, but also a a sort of social and political apparatus that actually represents working people as working people. And I think one of the failures of, of the contemporary left is the ability to recognize that we are not attached organically to the American working class in any meaningful sense, right? And we need to figure out how we do that because there's nothing, there's nothing really stopping these incredibly popular policies from being championed by a steel worker, you know, from being championed by somebody running for state house in a red district who happens to be, you know, a union coal miner. These are things that we should be exploring and things that we should be trying to figure out how to develop. And for me, that starts with the labor movement. I mean, I think that we have to start with what's left of the organized working class and build out from there because they, it's the only institution in America that has the constituency, the political subject, and the resources to actually do this kind of work, to actually put forward the kinds of candidates that could ignite the non-college educated working class that could get them behind a constituency and that could mobilize the resources necessary to get them over the line. What about the culture war? <laughs> Look, I love everything you're saying, Dustin. I'm fucking, I'm buying what you're selling, my friend. I'm lapping it up like a dog at a dish, you know, uh, with some fresh uh, toilet water, whatever it is that dogs enjoy. Uh, you know, but, 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 but what, what come coming back down to reality as like Ben and I have been talking about like ad nauseum, unfortunately for you patrons. And like, we've been, uh, we just wrapped up a cancel culture series, which you can't talk about that without, uh, you know, aggressively addressing the culture war that's playing out on both sides this is the way I like to put it, you know, in, in my own somewhat uh, interesting and unique ways. These people have uh, decided to leave the vampires castle and take up shop and it's in the basement. Uh, I think that's right. That that's the one side, and of course, the other side is this vampire's castle, which has turned into a vampire's kingdom, because it's 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 sort of been like, uh, you know, uh, sublimated into the entire liberal, like educated uh, elite class, right? I mean, you you, you're at a bar and you hear people arguing about, you know, um, like how intentions like don't matter right? In speech acts, right? About how, you know, people can be unintentionally racist about like these things that used to be sort of buried in like um, campus activist culture, 
debates are now being played out among the the, the so-called like normie liberal center. Um, and so the vampire's castle has been trans- transcended to the vampire's kingdom in that way. And the left doesn't seem to offer many other solutions. Uh, thought experiment. Instead of Sanders, you get uh, a somehow magically um, aged uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as your banner uh, you know, banner carrier in 2020. And as good as she is on many, many things, and I'll stand for in many places, think about the, the, the key differences there in rhetoric and and in in an inability to to draw in new constituencies. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the this is the kind of crisis we're in inside the Democratic Party. And I've I've toyed with trying to figure out a, a succinct way of putting this, but I think that there's this wedge in the party right now. And for lack of a better word, you have the unwoke but unleft in Joe Biden, and he's kind of the last of a dying breed, totally uninterested in doing any of the rhetorical moves that the younger progressives are very accustomed to and seems almost totally alien to them by his complete disinterest in anything that smacks of PC culture or wokeness. And then on the other side, you have the hyper-woke but left uh, progressive elements in the party. Now, my big fear is that both of these wings can't really mobilize much of the constituency we need because... Joe Biden will probably take a bigger share of the non-college educated working class, but that is a smaller share of the Democratic Party now than it ever was. And I think the the very woke but economically left part of the party is unable to break out of the urban enclaves in which they've been sort of they, they've come accustomed to. Right. Your, politicians are creatures of their environment. And if your politicians are coming out of the deepest blue districts across the country with a very young constituency, they are going to think, not stupidly, but they are going to think and act as if their constituency represents a much larger swath of the American public than it does. And that's one of the big challenges is I think many of the victories we've had on the left have come out of the deepest blue liberal districts. And as a result, they're kind of alien to many parts of the country which don't look or sound like that. And our challenge is kind of skirting a kind of third way, if you will, which says we are going to be left-wing, staunchly left-wing economically. But when it comes to the PC culture and when it comes to the woke stuff, we're going to have to draw a line. And we're going to have to say, look, this stuff just simply isn't part of our program. We're not against it. We're not for it. It's just not something we're going to be emphasizing day in and day out. And the example I always give for this is, look, the Republican Party has been trying to destroy OSHA. It's been trying to destroy the minimum wage. It's been trying to destroy the post office for the past hundred years, right? It's never campaigned on those issues. It has never went to purple districts and said, we want to destroy your health and safety on the job. And we want to destroy your way of being able to have mail delivered to you in rain, sleet, or snow. They never say that. And the reason why they never say it is they recognize it's wildly unpopular. So they campaign on the things they know they can win swing voters on. Now, for us, the challenge is we don't know yet if we can win swing voters on our left-wing economic program. But I guarantee you we cannot win them on a far left-wing cultural agenda. But we might be able to win them on a left-wing economic agenda. We have to try. 
And I think where we've seen some success with this in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, where unions have pretty strong committees on political education or, or PACs or uh, independent committees for political action, where, what they've done is they've focused squarely on union issues. It's all they talk about on the campaign trail, the kinds of issues that union workers care about and that union communities that have high union density care about, right? Healthcare, wages, jobs. And it's not like when they get into office, they vote with the Republicans on the cultural shit. They vote straight line liberal on all the stuff. But when they campaign, they're not talking about gun. They're not talking about gun control. They're not talking about a lot of the issues. They're certainly not talking about abolishing the police. Right. But they are talking about the bread and butter issues that actually mobilize a lot of non-college educated workers to get out to the polls. And that has to be, to me, a real serious concern for how we move forward. And I think to many leftists, when they hear that, they think one of two things. One, they think it means you're throwing people under the bus, which is just, to me, an asinine political conclusion, because any strategic evaluation has to involve priorities. And if you believe that prioritizing means that the other things on your agenda are suddenly bullshit and you don't care about them and you're willing to like let all of these other things just disappear, then you simply don't understand politics. But the second reaction to it is a misunderstanding of the way in which people actually digest political ideas. Because many times you'll hear on the left, well, we have to agitate for this unpopular thing so that we can make it popular. Well, that can work sometimes, but it can only work if the nascent political conditions are are available to make that policy agenda issue popular. And it's probably then, not going to work if, if, uh, if you're trying to do it with 20 different things at the same time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, they also have to like you, right? I mean, let's be, they have to like you and they have to trust you. This is what Ben and I have been like beating the shit out of for the past couple of months. It's like, we got to be a left that people want to be a part of. And shouts out to our late brother, Michael Brooks. I'd be remiss in not bringing him into this conversation, pour one out for the man, because that's something that, you know, we've been saying, I know, but he said it better than most, which is like, got to have a left that people want to be a part of. So that, that's a big thing too, right? Is that, you know, in order to agitate whatever the hell that's supposed to mean, right? Um, yeah, people got to actually identify with you in the first place to take your word for it. Why, why should they believe uh, you? And, and, and on that theme, right, I, I also wonder if we could make some distinctions uh, as, far as, as far as the culture war question, because, um, you know, because there are things like presumably that, uh, that are, you know, that are actually tied to a concrete policy issue that we care about uh, that, you know, like things that are, you know, unfinished business for the 60s rights revolution, you know, about, um, you know, anti-discrimination ordinances, you know, things like that, that, you know, that um, where, um, where, where, you know, we can, we can have a tactical and strategic discussion about what's emphasized electorally, right? But that the actual, the actual position matters, right? But then there's a lot of cultural war stuff that even that isn't true of, that like, it's, it's, that it's not tied to anything, uh, where 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 the position matters, it's just sort of like weird, like pure rhetoric. Yeah, it's 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 pure rhetoric. It's pure, um, you know, professional managerial class, uh, you know, social cultural mores and uh, and and manners. Uh, it's it's like a certain kinds of weird games that people people play on social media. Uh, and my deep insight here is that as far as I can tell, most people hate that shit. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think on your first point, though, Ben, like the left also has to take stock of where where we've won. I mean, you can easily run a campaign on the kinds of 60s rights revolution questions and win the kinds of voters we want to win because those questions are no longer controversial. And it's not the case that if you run saying that you're going to defend anti-discrimination law, you're just suddenly going to lose all these white workers. That's just not true. There's been a remarkable shift culturally in this country where things like racism and sexism are genuinely thought of as wrong and bad, right? That is a good and successful project that we have, as a left, succeeded in making happen. Now, the right is doing their damnedest to reverse those gains, but there's no reason why that necessarily means we have to do the second step, which is the only way to further the rights revolution is to push these kind of very maximalist and very unpopular uh, destruction of basic cultural mores, right? Basic cultural understandings of who we are as people and what, what our lives are like and things like this. I just don't think those are things that are going to appeal to many people. And politically, they don't have very much payoff. Because so step one, we should abolish the family is what you're saying, essentially, right? What'd you say, sir? Abolish the family, for sure. That needs to be the right. that's, part. That's, that's a classic. Um, I think that we should all definitely give up any consumer uh, behaviors that, that maintain our sanity for the sake of uh, staving off global warming. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I just throw a little uh, humor in there to give some relief for the sense of kind of what we're up against. Like, again, what you're saying makes so much fucking sense. I'm here for it. Sign me up. Uh, I just have to bring us back down to earth from time to time as you're spitting so much truth here uh, to kind of reveal the, the, uh, like the contrast that, you know, that the, let's be honest, the extraordinarily powerful um, institutionally speaking and otherwise uh, contrast that we like hardcore, no holds barred, uh, you know, historical materialist motherfuckers like us are, are up against. Um, Can I also just uh, say something when I totally agree with everything you've said, Dustin, but I also wonder if we're even conceding too much ground because a social democratic program would be able to materialize the types of, you know, left wing agenda that a lot of liberals purport to support and advocate for. Um, and I think, you know, the people who are the most rhetorically anti-racist are totally uninterested in programs that would materially benefit Black people disproportionately. So I just wonder... Is the Planned Parenthood opposing Medicare for All, right? Like, the, the right. that has insisted that, you know, freedom of choice is the most important thing for a woman to be able to do, except that choice stops when it comes to economics. The, the moment that economics comes into play, we don't care because at the end of the day, we have to recognize that Planned Parenthood is a healthcare provider, they're a health insurer. And so of course they're going to be personally and, and very viscerally opposed to Medicare for all. It will cut a big chunk of what they do as an organization. And so I think you're right, Brianna, like we, we shouldn't cede the ground in the sense that if we want to, if we want the rights revolution to succeed, we have to move into the economic realm. And this has been said from, you know, Rustin and Randolph and King, the minute, the day that they signed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, they knew that these victories would be, would amount to very little if we didn't then go into the 
economic sphere to make them realizable. And that's exactly what we've seen, right? Despite the fact that housing discrimination is technically illegal, we live in more segregated society than, than we have in a long time, right? Despite the fact that we don't technically have any kind of legalized uh, Jim Crow laws, we don't have a very diverse body populace that lives next to people of different races and different classes. We have a very segregated society. And the result of that is that people seem to think that the way to fix it is more anti-racism or more anti-sexism laws, when the reality is it needs to be an economic transformation. It's the only way for us to move forward. Yeah, and even on the specific issue of freedom of choice, I mean, I, you know, I was looking into this, and apparently abortions aren't free. Uh, so, so they, they, yeah, I know it. Uh, but uh, so, you know, Medicare, you know, even on that, you know, specific issue, uh, you know, Medicare for all, you know, would would be, um, you know, extremely relevant. You know, both, you know, both in that, like, ideally, right? You know, what Bernie was talking about, which would be a. Uh, you know, which which would be you know overturning the Hyde Amendment, so you could have that as part of Medicare for all, right? Or even, frankly, if it wasn't, because you know, because that would you know, because money is fungible, right? You know, and um, and and you know, and and so saving a bunch of money on, on on health insurance, you know, even there, even on you know, even on that issue, I mean, if you if you really you know take your own rhetoric seriously, right? This is important that everybody be able to make their own reproductive decisions. You know, then, then ideally, right, you should want, um, well, you know, what you should want is free abortion as part of Medicare for all and also free daycare, you know, and, and other supports for people who make the other decision, right? So so you can have a genuine range of options, you know, and, and again, that, that that's something I think, you know, I mean, I think also ties into what you're talking about, right, that, uh, that we... You know, something I think the left could be better at, you know, and I think Bernie Sanders was starting to do it in his second run in 2020, uh, is, is, is find ways to, to talk about freedom, you know, which is a rhetorical style that, you know, that I think, I think really resonates, you know, in a lot of the American electorate uh, in a way that ties it into this kind of substantive left economic agenda. Yeah, and I want to take up Adam's challenge directly, because I think that the, the point you're trying to make, Adam, is is it possible with, and I think this is a live thought experiment, I'd like to hear people's opinions, is it possible with the electorate of the Democratic Party as it is to do this kind, to do what we're saying without the inevitable smearing, mudslinging, and quite frankly, alienation of a sector of the progressive left that buys into this kind of left-wing culture war? Look at the and British I, Labor Party, the way that they are cynically, the Starmer, Starmer and his, uh, you know, henchmen are, are cynically wielding these uh, very serious charges against Corbyn and, and the Corbynites. And this is this is the challenge of the, you know, what Piketty calls the Brown and left. Is it yeah. possible to run candidate? And I think it's an open question. If we were to have a candidate for Congress in a in a purple district uh, that you know, didn't indulge in the culture war, had solid liberal credentials on all these questions, but didn't indulge in the culture war rhetorically and spoke very clearly about the economic questions facing us and the social questions facing the country at large. Would it be possible to mobilize the young millennial electorate in those elections? That's an open question. And I don't think we have an answer right now. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you mentioned at the very beginning of this, uh, tying it all together. I think, Brianna, your point about let's take some fucking credit for this. You know, the legacy that we're talking about is a rich one. Uh, we don't have to go full communism like we did, you know, which we talk, like we were riffing on in the, in the cold open here, you know, uh, like, <laughs> you know, uh, denouncing AMLO for his reformist uh, scumbag uh, tendencies. But, but you know, it's a proud agenda that we've, you know, by the way, it's like, Social democracy has contributed to almost the entirety of what we consider to be like humane civilization in 2020, right? I mean, that's not put to, like to to uh, to to um, to blurry of a point on that. But you go back to you go back to Johnson. You mentioned well, that real quick, Adam. If I could interrupt you just to show how cynical the the liberal left is on these questions at the beginning. Oh, please do that. There's always time for that. Yeah. At the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, did anybody realize that uh, the liberals were saying, have you noticed how the only countries that can deal with coronavirus are the ones with female prime ministers? And they were showcasing social democratic prime ministers from the Mm -hmm. northern countries. Mm -hmm. There was no mention of the fact that these are the most robust left wing governments in the history of democratic parliamentary politics. But it was the fact that they were women that was that endowed them with these incredible abilities to to fight the crisis better than. Uh, the men on the continent who were fumbling around incapable of doing anything. And yeah, it just clearly, clearly, clearly if they had Margaret Thatcher instead of Boris Johnson, you know, right. right. Suddenly she would have done a, an excellent job handling this crisis or Condoleezza Rice in the United States. She would have just knocked it out of the park. We would have been wonderful. Anyway, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that, I mean, hey, again, again, uh, anytime you'd like to jump in and expose the, uh, the cynical, uh, bullshit nature of the liberal elite class. Uh, yeah, we go back to Johnson. Where where's this? There, I studied this uh, this era in my bygone uh, academic days. Um, it, Johnson and and the kind of passing away of the early kind of hard nosed New Deal uh, political ideology, the the strategies, the tactics, and the coalition that emerged pre war uh, New Deal, not the kind of post war New Deal. Um, you know, imperialist, uh, straight sort of uh, Frankenstein's monster that emerged thereafter, obsessed about purchasing power and building up the suburbs and the rest of it, um, with a smattering of civil rights here and there, right? Uh, because, you know, the Klan was embarrassing us, you know? Um, it's like a 13-year-old kid, like, you know, talking to their mom, you're so embarrassing, stop! You know, that was the way that the liberals in the 60s, you know, talked about the Klan. In front of the Soviets. Yeah, yeah, don't do this in front of Stalin, you know, Make, making me look bad, you know? Uh, that was the extent of their of their principle, their anti-racist principles for the most, for the most part. The rest of them were fucking socialists you know uh, like uh campaigning for wallace uh, in 48 but i digress uh so you know there, there, there's a whole cadre of like young northeast liberal like uh fucking harvard yale princeton grads who flocked into the johnson administration who 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 led this transition from one of one some historians have called shovel ready new deal projects into these into these community based kind of grant centric uh, programs that we saw in in the great society, and of course the great society seems pretty fucking good compared to this kind of like <laughs> rampant um, identitarian means tested kind of hellscape that we live in now. But but that that even then was was a um, a regression for sure. So there was this overseeing of of the shovel ready New Deal era large public works style. Uh, society making projects in, into these kind of more uh, 
he's always the smartest fucking guys in the room, right? I mean, they they they're, they would be modern day Warrenites, but you see that playing out in a real way, and no mistake that the 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 last name is the same, and and the Kennedy, the JFK the third, uh, versus Ed Markey in Massachusetts, yeah. right? Yeah, you see this playing out again that these these uh, these smartest guy in the room liberal types are going to be wielding that agenda that you spoke about a, a moment ago against even soft social democrats like ed markey and that's the that's the new flavor that we're going to be up against uh in this post bernie era like warren was only it was a you know it was a a preface in, in in the book that's to be written in the next 20 years right and i think that there are a number of reasons for this i think you hit the nail on the head with the contradictions of the great society which on the one hand we got the greatest social democratic expansion that we've seen since, right? The existence of Medicare was the last social program that was ever instituted in this country. The last real robust social program that had ever been instituted. And that happened under LBJ. But at the same time, LBJ decentralized the welfare state in a dramatic fashion. And today, that flavor of technocratic liberalism has become dominant, right? And it was dominant then, but it's become even more ascendant. And I think that there are a couple of explanations for why that has happened. So Daniel Moynihan himself made the case very clearly in, during his time in the LBJ, Kennedy and Johnson administrations, where he said, look, there was no real demand on the ground for the war on poverty. This was a product of intellectuals inside the Kennedy-Johnson administration. We wanted to get rid of poverty. We came up with a way of figuring out how to do it, right? And that's obvious because they didn't do the thing that they needed to do, which was a full employment program, which the labor movement had been calling for since 46, right? Instead of that, they pushed for a very targeted, means-tested, weak T policy that they knew that they could get business to be interested in because it wouldn't hurt their bottom line and it wouldn't fuck up with their ability to actually fire and discipline the working class. And so they went with the anti-poverty agenda. And the liberals at that time had the bright idea that these enlightened business elites would go along with the social democratic or liberal agenda as long as it didn't threaten their profits. What they cynically or not uh, didn't want to say was that it also meant that the entire project was dependent on the elites. Mm -hmm. giving a yes or a no to the project, right? And that's what happens. The war on poverty gets canned the minute the Chamber of Commerce realizes it's strong enough to beat the shit out of any liberal administration. And that's what we see happen. Now, the reason that it's coming back with such a vengeance, I think, has a lot to do with party politics. Because what we've seen is because the left is so overeducated as a proportion of the general population, the Democrats are not stupid in their electoral calculations. They've recognized that they have this constituency of college-educated people and that that constituency lives primarily in the inner suburbs and in the kind of hub cities among the young millennials, right? So if you're looking at a congressional map, it makes absolute sense to say, let's go after this group. Because this is, the, this is the low-hanging fruit for us. Why should we bust our asses to try to get these non-college educated people back into party politics when it's so much effort, costs so much work to try to do, plus it puts us on the other side of the Chamber of Commerce and we don't really want to deal with that. 
it's much easier for them to say, let's try to mobilize the college educated electorate to the fullest extent possible. And you know what? Everybody had made fun of Chuck Schumer for doing this. And then in 2018, he was perfectly vindicated because that blue wave came in on the backs of college-educated workers. The same thing happened in the Democratic primary where all of a sudden you see all of these previously Republican voters flipping to become Democrats to vote in the primaries in places like Fairfax, Virginia. And again, the Democratic Party leadership was vindicated that the strategy of going after college-educated liberals is a saner electoral strategy than trying to win non-college educated voters, just because it's so much harder to do that. And you're forced to contend with an economic agenda that you don't like. And that puts you at odds with, with the ruling class in this country. So I think the reason we're seeing the type of technocratic liberalism become ascendant again is a function of that electoral calculation. It's very simple on the part of the, the democratic elite. It doesn't make sense uh, either electorally or socially, to to fight the Chamber of Commerce and try to fight to win over non-college educated workers when the electorate is shrinking rapidly and when the only people who seem to matter in party politics today are people with college degrees. One way to track this would be the convergence of of the, the British center-left with the American center-left and the differences in their policies in the post-war era. In the post-war era, the British left not perfectly. I can I can hear the voices of some of my friends and comrades uh, from over there. Like, come on, Adam, you're looking at this shit through rose-colored glasses. Obviously, that's that's how, that's what we do across the Atlantic uh, with one another. Uh, but but to, in a real sense, those those policies um, emerge in the British context post-war uh, as as. Um, uh, tra- trajectories that that stemmed from those strong working class institutions that were already in existence um, and on the rise. Um, whereas, yeah, right, the, the the great society programs were done sort of uh, not only not in concert with working class institutions, but but uh, but in large part behind their backs, um, and, and reasons for that, right? I mean, the the lack of democracy and the the way that uh, a lot of radicals and communists had been. Uh, eliminated from that movement up the, at that point in time, uh, post Taft Harley, even before that, um, there, there are a lot of there's a there's a lot of stories there, um, a lot of PhD dissertations that'll never be written because uh, uh, they're too uh, vulgar <laughs> for 2020. <laughs> um, but that's an interesting. Con- I don't know. I just I feel I feel like that had to be said because look at look at the debacle that's unfolding in the in the British Labour Party today as we fucking speak. And 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 they are converging with our center left in yeah. terms of what Starmer and his brigade have been able to achieve. If you compare it to to Pelosi's uh, right and to, to them, Schumer's Democratic Party to Starmer, you know the fact that the Labor Party won the South and lost the North was just a vindication of Blairism. It was not a major failing of the Labor Party. It was simply, oh, we were right in the '90s and we should have stayed the course. Because that's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna be able to win, and unfortunately, that you know it's electorally it's not been so discredited because these center left governments can occupy government with that constituency. The problem is, and this is the challenge that many of the center left don't want to confront. In the long term, you know, unlike Keynes's dictum, in the long term, it's the center left who dies from that that vision of society. Because you don't go from, and I think we'll see this with Biden, you don't go from a Biden presidency 
a tepid center-left presidency that's relying on the fickleness of the American middle class, which changes with whatever they see on TV that day, you don't win a, a long-term gain by relying on them. What you do is you bide time. And who are you biding time for? You're buying time for right-wing populists. Because whoever is coming after Trump is not going to be, it, my guess is it's not going to be a Romney Republican that we can make out to be an evil, awful, heartless billionaire. It's going to be a right-wing populist that is savvier, that is younger, that is more capable of igniting a constituency and doing some really awful, awful things in government. And I mean, you know, it's not crazy to think that Tucker Carlson is essentially grooming the new generation of right-wing populists. And those are the kinds of people that we're going to have to contend with. And if the Democratic Party cannot think of a way of combating these people economically, they are going to get rolled over. And they're not going to get rolled over because the working class is suddenly going to become ultra-reactionary. They're going to get rolled over because the Republican Party has such an incredible structural advantage in the, in the party system. They can win every Senate seat with half the effort. They can win the Electoral College without winning the, the popular vote. These structural Systems baked into our party system benefit the right and punish the left repeatedly. So all it takes is a charismatic right-wing populism, and you can get the Senate, you can get the presidency, and you already have the damn Supreme Court. And all the Democrats can win is a meek majority in Congress, a majority which is dependent on the blue dogs winning a few seats here and there in, in right-wing districts, where they consistently vote with Republicans when anything important comes up. So the Democrats are in a structural crisis that they either cynically or are just too stupid to realize that they simply can't maintain government as a party going forward if they continue along this path. Jesus, that sounds a lot like what we sort of came up with towards the end of our A-side last week. And I know you didn't crib it, uh, Dustin, because you're too much of a stone-cold motherfucker to listen to these these silly podcasts. Uh, but yeah, that makes me feel a little more justified. That kind of sounds a lot like your diagnosis of of the the potential ascendancy of of this even it, it might be phony right wing populism but it it fucking works doesn't it ben like yeah geez. yeah i mean look if uh if if people are at least making you know if the tucker carlson's and steve bannon's and josh howard's the world uh are at least making some noises that resonate with uh with with what people experience economically and what they're frustrated with uh, then, you know, if it's a choice between so some making some of the right noises and doing nothing, you know, making some of the right noises, unfortunately, um, is going to win. But uh, I wanted to, um, you know, I did want to make sure that, that we kind of before, you know, before we, we wrapped up the conversation that, that we steered um, maybe a little bit back towards uh, where we started mm-hmm. about the kind of post-Bernie autopsy and uh, going forward from there, you know, so we can win eventually uh, somehow uh, that uh, you, you know, because you, you wrote a really uh, actually even before the response to uh, Nagel and Tracy that we were talking about before uh, you, uh, you wrote a really interesting article back in April uh, for Jack Ben called Like It or Not. Uh, if we run third party, we'll lose, which is uh, which is one of those titles that pretty much guarantees that most people are only going to read the title and uh, react, you know, have a reaction to that. Um, but 
you know, I thought it was a really interesting historical perspective on how, like, you know, like you were saying that, like, at the beginning of our conversation today, that it's obviously it's a mistake to sort of um, try to have a one size fits all view about how party systems work or, or to do what, frankly, a lot of American socialists have done historically, which is to, you know, um, know more, you know, about European history than, than American history and, 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 you know, and, and kind of read, you know, Trotsky or whoever, and, and then awkwardly try to find ways to translate it all into the American context. Uh, but of course, um, you know, what you, you know, you do say in there that it's, it's not like one, you know, desirable possible outcome uh, of an effective left strategy might not be in fact to break from, you know, to, uh, lead to the creation of, of despite the headline, right? You know, long-term a viable third party. But uh, but what's you know, I was wondering if you could maybe just speak to what that might look like and how it is that a lot of the left right now is thinking about it wrong. So I think the the key passage in that or I'm not sure if it's in that article, but basically the way that Jared and I have formulated this is to say that realignment and break are not strategies; they are outcomes of party struggle. Mm-hmm. And there is no reason to think that you set your North Star at a party being your outcome. Your outcome should be a certain set of policies and, and organizing a certain constituency. That should be your outcome, right? You would want what you want to do is organize working people in the interest of furthering a left wing uh, economic agenda that benefits the society, right? That should be your, your goal. That should be your North Star. So then you think, okay, what's the fastest way to get to that? Well, the fastest way to get to that right now is running as a, on the Democratic Party ballot line, obviously. And I think most leftists today are willing to accept that. There are a few cranks who insist that simply by doing that, that's automatically a, a disqualifier for your left-wing bona fides. But most leftists today recognize that. They understand that that's the case. Now, the next question is the 30-year, 40-year question, which is, well, what is the goal of doing this, right? And for me, the goal is to actually win some serious power in American government. If you do that, I think there are two outcomes. One outcome is you create a cleavage in the party so deep and so severe that the party splits, right? And so this is a potential outcome. It's what happened with the Republicans, right? And you could see the dizzying spiral of party politics in in a serious crisis where a huge chunk of the Democratic Party splits and a chunk of the Republican Party splits, right? Right. And you have a, a kind of quadrant system in Congress for a short period of time before there's a consolidation of what parties are going to survive this situation. And that needs to be said because it's, again, it's an internally mobilized party system, which means Congress is where the action happens. Congress is where parties live and die. If that happens, the left would have to be able to overpower the center left in order to become the second dominant party, right? The more likely scenario is that the center left realigns. The center left adopts a huge chunk of the policy platform of the far left in order to neutralize the most radical elements of that program, right? And we have to contend with this because this is exactly what happens to the communists and socialists under the New Deal. The New Deal comes around and eats 
the third, the left-wing third party's lunch. They build off the policy programs of the populists, they build off the policy programs of the socialists, and they build off the policy programs of the communists. And the Communist Party voting bloc between 1928 and 1936 absolutely collapses to almost nothing. Now, if you're a third party here, what is your strategy for that? What is your strategy for when the Democratic Party decides, yeah, we're just going to adopt their most popular policies? Because we can and because you've built enough of a constituency that it makes electoral sense for us to eschew a few of our business partners to win that constituency. And I don't, they, they don't have an answer for that because the, the truth is the American party system is much more dynamic than many leftists want to give it credit for. And so the possibility of break or realignment is imminent. It's, it's pregnant in the system. But the reality is one of these things is far more likely than the other as an outcome. And it's not a moral question. It's not a question of whether or not you're doing the right thing. It's a question of how the other side reacts. And this is why I say it's an outcome, because you cannot control, we cannot control as political actors, how the elite of the Democratic Party is going to respond to our appeals. They can respond in a number of different ways. And until we know what that response is going to be, we simply can't say that we're going to set our North Star at a certain political leverage point organizationally. We have to set our North Star at how do we build a constituency and how do we win policies? Because that's the stuff of politics. The other stuff is the stuff of organization, the stuff of technocracy. The stuff of politics is building a constituency. If we can build a mass constituency of working people, the Democratic Party has to deal with it. They have to figure out if, they, if they're willing to shed that group and, and suffer a split or if they want to incorporate it and suffer a realignment. So that's, that's ultimately right now up to them. We're not in a position where we're going to elect a majority of the Democratic caucus. We're not going to be in that position in a very, very long time. And I, I'm not sure if we ever will get into that position because if the Democratic Party simply realigns on key policy issues, it will eat our lunch. And I think we have to contend with that as a very serious historical and political outcome. That, that's not a fantasy. It's not something that, that we choose. It's something that will happen in the American party system. Amen. Sure. I was just going to say, um, you know, one of the things you point to is not only the response of the center left, but we've been talking about the response of the Republican party as well. And you cited Piketty's description of people really falling out of parties such that the two parties now are educated middle-class voters. And so I wonder um, also how the Republican Party might respond to these efforts as well. So I think the, the, the trend all over the world is the only place where left, the genuine left-wing populism can capture the working class vote in a significant to a significant degree, is basically post-communist countries. And the reason why that is, is because they can effectuate some of their economic demands by virtue of the fact that those countries have a legacy and a history of a kind of economic understanding of themselves and a very weak, weak, weak capitalist class. So their, their countervailing force is very weak. And so in places like Hungary, you see the most vicious of the far right, because they're able to couple a far right wing xenophobic and racist uh, political agenda with some modest economic redistribution. But even in places like Italy, they're unable to actually 
make good on these policy promises. So you have the Five Star Movement and the Lega, which used to be Lega Nord. Uh, they campaigned simultaneously on providing everybody with a universal basic income and a flat tax. Now, you can't fund a universal basic income from a flat tax. It's mathematically impossible. So which one of these things is going to get through Parliament? Clearly, the tax is going to get through Parliament. And I think this is the, this is the crisis of right-wing populism, is that they cannot hold their rhetoric of economic redistribution to their ultimate owner class, which is who is their real constituency. And mm-hmm. recently, you've seen this with you know the preeminent right-wing populist intellectual, uh, what's his name, Josh Hawley, right? When it comes to economic questions, Josh Hawley ends up voting on the right on many, many questions. And people don't realize what that means for right-wing populism. It means that they can win elections, but they can't win policy. And so the Republicans have a crisis in their own right, which is if they can win on the short term, they can't effectuate the policy changes. And so they can't actually mobilize the, the working class constituency that genuine right-wing ideologues want to mobilize. But the truth is, it's not nearly the crisis that the center left has because they don't really care about those policy positions. At the end of the day, they want to shrink the electorate. They would be very happy with an electorate that consisted of nothing but very rich people and college-educated liberals. That would be a beautiful situation for them. They'd be able to outspend them. They'd be able to win every policy proposal they want. They have no need to actually push for their right-wing economic populism agenda. What they need to do is campaign on it. So in the long term, I think the Republicans have a crisis of right-wing populism just as bad as the Democrats, but the party does not have a crisis of party legitimacy as bad as the Democratic Party does. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, we, we call, this is really well-timed. I mean, again, by accident, I'm sure you were at a union meeting or something instead of listening to last week's A-side. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, by the way, you're the only person who's off the hook for not listening to DPS. Everybody else better fucking be listening every week is all I'm saying. Uh, Dustin, you're, you get a pass. Hey, uh, when, I had my, when I had my two-hour commute to New York, I was an avid listener. But now that my commute is 20 minutes, I, I don't have time to, to listen to the podcasts. I work from home, so I don't, I don't listen to myself. I don't listen to anything. Uh, maybe, maybe come town, but, uh, maybe I'll leave that in. Maybe I'll delete it. I don't know. Fuck it. We're talking to the patrons. Um, yeah, no, I mean, we, we talked about this, right? I mean, they're, they're up against the, this faux right-wing populism is up against the wall and the way that Ben has written about and talked about, I mean, you did a, Ben did a segment on David Packman show that we, we talked about last week. And, um, if patrons haven't seen that, they definitely, definitely should. I mean, we could, we could vamp on that forever and ever about how they're up, how they're in a bind. Uh, and again, right, their their owner class always uh, wins out. How do we? Let's bring it home, as Ben said uh, a moment ago. Let's bring it home. Do you have Do you have a question to bring it home, Ben? You You seem to really be kind of like uh, hell bent on not skirting this question of kind of like where the fuck are we right now <laughs> after Bernie? Yeah, um, I don't even know how to address like Brianna. You guys, um, I don't even know how to address like this because I <laughs> just like I've been living in like a, a pit of despair for the past three months. Ben, do you have do you have sage wisdom that can uh, guide us I, all? I, I certainly have no sage wisdom. I, I would have shared it if I had it, but um, but but yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I am curious, um, you know, about you know what the you know way out of the pit of despair despair looks like right now. Like 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 if I mean, obviously, there's no guarantee of getting out of it, but like if if we could, you know, uh, how how good we uh, because. Any, um, 
you know, any hope presumably of breaking that, um, you know, that pattern that, you know, that like, okay, so like maybe the best case scenario, you know, they are our most like fervent, you know, like sweaty, happy fantasies of, you know, of what the future of the left might look like would be that uh, at least if we're, you know, realistic enough to understand that everything, you know, you just said is right, you know, is that, you know, we could, you know, that, uh, that we could get to a point where the, the center left was not able to, uh, to bend and, and, and accommodate us. And, and we had a, um, you know, what's sometimes called a dirty break, you know, that we could, that we could, that, that like, that we could create like a, like a labor or socialist party in America in the same way that uh, the Republicans were created out of the anti-slavery wing of the Whigs, you know, but it seems like part of the reason why, unfortunately, that's such a long shot is also what you point to in your response to Nagel and Tracy as to why, you know, Bernie lost that, you know, that we can see, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, he should have done this, he should have done that. And like some of those criticisms are going to be true, right? You know, it was, it was not a perfect campaign by any stretch of the imagination, you know, we were all there, right? You know, but, um, but uh, that seems to sort of miss the point, which is that the, the sort of bigger reason that we lost is that the other side is just structurally stronger right now. Uh, that you know we have no instances of uh, of there being successful socialist you know parties or movements that didn't have an organized working class at their base, uh, and to some extent the the gamble maybe with um, with the Bernie campaign and everything that was represented by the Bernie campaign is that we could do some of this stuff in the opposite direction that we could, we could start off with the large scale electoral uh, wins and sort of use that as a catalyst to, to get things going at the base uh, in, in terms of like rebuilding that kind of working class organization. And, you know, and it was not like, um, I mean, I, I think it's a gamble that you had to make in those circumstances, right? Unfortunately, right now, the thing that happened was the thing that was most likely, you know, which is that it was defeated, uh, so, so how does, how does that work? Right. I mean, how, how are we, you know, if, if it turns out that we really do need to, uh, to start with the organized, uh, you know, labor movement at the base, um, before, before we can become strong enough to win or, or even force that kind of break, you know, within, uh, the democratic party, um, like there's a, you know, there's a sort of, you know, I mean, I, I was in, you know, in my, you know, ridiculous, you know, airy fairy corner of the, of the labor movement, you know, organizing, you know, adjunct professors, you know, I've, I've, I've seen some of this stuff and, um, and like reorganizing or revitalized militant, you know, labor movement is also one of these things that you, it turns out you can't get just by wanting it enough. Uh, you know, like there are, there are, other impediments, right? Like it's not just, damn it, if we spent a little bit more money on organizing and, you know, and, and, and we all logged a few more hours doing this, you know, we'd, we'd see our way to the other side of it. Um, so, so what, what can be done and particularly like, like, like what could we do as socialists to, to try to contribute to whatever the path out of the pit of despair looks like right now? Well, I think I'll throw some cold water and then I'll throw some optimism. The cold water is there's absolutely no reason why we should be talking about a dirty break at this point. We, we control less than 0.01% of government. 
there's it, the idea of talking about that to me is just a pure fantasy. It means nothing to ordinary people. It means nothing to the constituency we want to organize. So we we can't think of our goal as we need to have some kind of break with the Democratic Party. Our goal should be making some inroads with the labor movement. And our goal should be building a constituency of ordinary working people. Now, once we reorient the sites, there's some very positive developments, right? What what Bernie did was he introduced a language and normalized a way of talking about politics that you can now bring to any picket line in the country and it does not seem like some sort of crazy red uh, out there thing, right? You can talk about these things openly and honestly in the trade union movement in a way that you couldn't since 1946. And that's just true. Now, the other bit of optimism I'll make is that the only time that a significant chunk of Democratic Party incumbents lost to primary insurgents was in 1946. And that was by the strength of one organization. And that was the CIO PAC in 1946. Now, the CIO PAC controlled a very small number of real workers in just absolute terms, if you compare it to the number of workers in the country. Yet they were able to flex their muscles way beyond their weight, winning 18 primary elections in that year alone. Now, if we are able to figure out how we can mobilize the strength, the existing strength of organized labor, which is very, very weak, to effectuate that kind of change, to get that kind of insurgency going, we can do a lot more than what we're currently doing. But we need to be oriented toward the idea that the labor movement is the, the organized expression of this ability to do it. Now, how we get there is an open question. And I think we're all going to be experimenting with ways to get to that end goal. But the, the potential is there. The raw material is there. And beyond the question to your other challenge, which is organizing the labor movement today seems incredibly difficult. Yes, absolutely it does. And it did in the 1890s as well. And the question is whether or not we have the raw material on the floor, on the shop floor, to re-energize and reorganize the labor movement. And I think we do. In certain strategic sectors, I absolutely think we do. You cannot tell me that there is an Amazon worker today in this country that doesn't look to one of the major unions and say, I want that. I want to be a part of that. And the other major advantage we have is for the first time since, since we've taken polls, the American people predominantly agree. They think unions are a force for good in this country. People do not realize how remarkably anti-union this country has been for the past 50 years in popular opinion. And for the first time in history, we have popular opinion on our side where people think, no, you know what? We actually need those institutions back. We need those things back because they're important. And they're not just important for the economic life of the workers that are in them, but they're important for our civic and democratic lives as well. Because those are the only institutions that actually provide the basis for a shared understanding of working class life. They're the only institutions in which working people can come together in whatever type of social, civic, and otherwise organization that they want to be a part of. It starts and ends with the labor movement. And so for me, we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us to build on Bernie, 
And we should be optimistic about that. We are in a horrible period of defeat right now where many of us on the left think our moment is over. We've got nothing. But the other way of looking at this is the, especially on the radical left, these might be the death throes of the kind of hyper-sectarian, hyper-identitarian and woke screams of how do they hold on to their, their little bit of power. Because at this point, we can, we can potentially move into a much broader constituency, a constituency of actual working people that can totally marginalize what has existed as the left since the 1990s, right? And if that happens, we have a real serious potential for changing politics in this country. Now, I think it's there. I think that we have a lot of work to do. I don't think it's going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of us exiting our comfortable existence and working very, very hard to build up that situation. But it's possible and it's realizable. And I think the conditions for doing it on a structural and cultural level are there in a way that we haven't seen since the 1940s. I mean, that sounds like an ending to me, if anything does. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, I, I like the way that, you know, I mean, you've, you've kind of uh, slapped me around a little bit, which I thought I was a stone cold motherfucker. I guess maybe uh, you want up me today, Dustin. Uh, but like, you know, but but seriously, your point is like, you. it seems like you're the thing you constantly turn back to is this uh, like historically grounded understanding of like to try to to try to beat this magical thinking out of our heads. Right. The American party system has operated in such and such way for 150, 170 years. It's not likely that we're going to have some radical break from that kind of those kind of uh, changes. It's not likely that given the balance of forces and the institutions, we're going to magically find ourselves in some higher level of socialist society. And I think that there was a moment for magical thinking. I don't know, agree or disagree during the Bernie wave you might've had a higher tolerance for some magical thinking that, that something radically different was possible. It was almost a miracle, like falling from the sky in the way. I wrote an article called it's his party now. So (laughs) plenty of these, these fantasies. All right. All right. So you're guilty as much as anybody, but, 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 but like, you know, again, savvy historical thing, political thinking requires us to, to survey the, the conjuncture. Right. I mean, and, and, and things have, absolutely shifted and we need to to shift it as well so uh yeah i enjoy this uh come back with dps soon uh thanks guys for having me this is a great discussion yeah 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 thanks everybody uh patrons for listening i hope you guys enjoyed uh brianna's presence you're gonna be hearing a lot more of her very soon and and, uh what do you think brianna how how was your uh your first b-side experience you need you need a cigarette how you feeling yeah, I've been eyeing all of the cigarettes and whiskeys that Dustin has been imbibing <laughs> throughout this. And I got to say, I, toxic I, did, I did this wrong. A lot of toxic yeah. masculinity. I wanted to call you out, uh, call you in rather, call you in <laughs> rather. Yeah. But also on the step top. up and step down. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I felt really, uh, uh, yeah. Every, every time I see Dustin on the zoom, you know, reach you for the whiskey. I, 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 I feel, uh, you know, like it makes it makes me angry because because I, I I really I really want to pour a drink right now, but I'm supposed to run take a run after I do this. Oh, I was gonna say, motherfucker, you're gonna run 20 miles after this, aren't you? Anyway, all right, everybody, uh, signing off. Uh, this has been your DPSB side. Y'all come back real soon. Now. You hear? Hey, right. everyone.